Amen. Our scripture reading this evening comes once again from the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Our text will primarily come from verse 4 and to a, a lesser extent the remaining verses of the chapter. And so for the full context, we'll read the whole chapter, those 14 verses of the book of Hebrews. Let's give our attention then to the infallible and inerrant word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, you have told us to seek your face And so tonight, O Lord, we seek your face, and we ask that you would meet with us by your word and spirit, that we might behold the wondrous things that you have spoken to us from this, your holy word, and that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until we shall see you with our eyes as we see you by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may remember, as we have considered the book of Hebrews together in these past months, we have said that the book of Hebrews is making two primary declarations. First, the book of Hebrews is concerned to declare that Jesus Christ is greater and above everything else, that he's above all, over all, better than all, for he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we said the second thing is similar to it, 
that Jesus Christ is sufficient and for, sufficient for the salvation of our sins. That as our great high priest, he once offered himself for the sins of many, he did it, and he saves to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. And as we've seen those great statements uh, poured out for us in this first chapter, we've seen the Son declared to us. God is making a great argument for us in this portion of Scripture. He's declaring the Son. And as he does that, he makes those seven great propositions concerning the Son. That the Son, in verse 2, is the heir of all things. That through the Son, he made the worlds. That the Son, in verse 3, is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And that he has by himself purged our sins, and when he had done so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as we saw last month from verse 4, that in doing so, he has become so much better than the angels, for he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And you might remember last time that we considered those angels and what their purpose was, that they were and are messengers of God, that they are pointers to God, and they are worshipers of God. That's the purpose of the angels, and the Son, Jesus Christ, is greater than all of them, because he has a name that is higher and greater than all the angels. That's the argument of the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. But what the Lord does then, as he goes into verse 5, is he wants to take us from these great propositions of the Son and reveal to us something more explain these propositions, expound them to us, and in other words, interpret them for us. And so tonight, the Lord is taking us, as it were, from the message to the method that he brings the message in. He leads us to the place of interpretation. And if we're to understand the scriptures as we read them, if we want to understand them well, and if we want to understand the rest of Hebrews well, we must know something of the interpretation of Scripture. How do we do it? Can we do it? Should we do it? Can we understand more fully these great propositions that God has given to us? So I want us tonight to consider interpretation first in this way, by looking at false views of interpretation, then looking at the biblical view, the infallible rule of interpretation, before seeing then how God brings us back to the message of his word to see how this interpretation, this rule of interpretation, glorifies the Son, Jesus Christ. But first, consider then certain problems with methods of interpretation that we face today. What have you heard concerning the interpretation of Scripture? I've shared with some of you before, I'll share it again tonight for all, that when I was in college, I once joined a Bible study. And there were 10 to 15 of us there, and I don't remember who the leader was, but there was a leader, and he read the Bible. I don't remember what portion of Scripture he read, but after he read the Bible, he said, we're now going to go around the room, and everyone is going to tell us how they feel the text impacted them. What do they feel the meaning of the text is? And with 10 to 15 people, students in the room, there were 10 to 15 different interpretations of how that text felt to us. The leader then closed the meeting in prayer, and we went on our ways. 
And that was how the scripture was interpreted in that Bible study. Well, this is a very common method of interpretation today. We might call it the feelings-based interpretation of scripture, where the scripture is presented and then it's left to us based on our ever-changing feelings how to interpret what we've read. There are many that follow this method in the present day. If you follow the whole methods of modern Bible translation, this is a large part of how many new modern translations of the Scripture are put together for us. I remember also in college that as we had theology classes, I remember learning the difference between a literal translation of the Scripture and a dynamic equivalent translation of the Scripture. And it seems perhaps in the present day that we are transitioning from a feelings-based translation of the Scripture, from the dynamic equivalent and certainly not uh, holding fast to a word-for-word literal translation. For if you look at many of the translations of Scripture today and you say, show me which Greek text that word came from, you might find from the for-profit Bible translators who are no longer overseen by the church but by by corporations who are now managing the scripture for us, you might see that they didn't get it from any one text. But looking at 15 or 20 different ancient manuscripts, they then decided on the word that felt best for them, which may have come from none. This is a method that is very popular today. And since our feelings change, so then does by, by, uh, by inference then, so does our interpretation of scripture. It's always changing. There's no rock for us to stand on. And this leaves those that follow in their feelings open to the methods of false teachers. And the false teachers come with their own interpretations of Scripture. There is another, a second interpretation that you might have heard of before, and it's those that would interpret the Scripture by rejecting the Old Testament altogether. This past week, I understand that longtime minister in Atlanta, Charles Stanley, went home to be with the Lord at age 90 years old. He was the minister at First Baptist Church just around the corner from us here on the way to Dunwoody Pines, if you ever drive from here to the assisted living facility. And he passed away this past week. He has a son that you've probably heard of before. His name is Andy Stanley. Andy does not walk in the way of his father. He does his own thing with the largest church in Atlanta, perhaps in the southeast. Some estimates give that with all the campuses, there are more than 50,000 people in Atlanta that hear Andy Stanley preach, so-called, each Lord's Day. And if you know anything about his theology, he has preached and practiced an unhinging of the Christian life and message from the Old Testament. He is ignoring and enjoys, and maybe even we could say mocks, things that are taught in the Old Testament. He's not new in this way. It's one of the oldest errors, and perhaps we'd even call it a heresy, one of the oldest heresies that the early church had to deal with. There is an ancient heretic named Marcion. Marcion in the second century AD. And this man thought he knew better than all else. And he said that the Old Testament had a different God than the New Testament. And so he told Christians that they needed to avoid the Old Testament altogether. He went even further and said, we need to avoid most of the New Testament. Only listen to the books that I tell you you can listen to. And many followed in the way of Marcion to their own destruction. Well, there's been many variations on that theme over time, haven't there? This destruction or this ignoring of the Old Testament, claiming instead that we need the New Testament or certain books from the New Testament. That's another 
view of interpretation of the Scripture, interpreting it without the Old Testament. Well, I think things like that led to the third interpretation of Scripture, which perhaps you're familiar with, and that is the modernist interpretation of Scripture, or the liberal interpretation of Scripture, which has nothing to do with politics, but has to do with theological ideas. And the modernist, or the liberal, of which our church, by God's grace, came out of almost 100 years ago, was delivered from that great heresy. But the modernist idea of Scripture doesn't take Scripture as the infallible Word of God, but as story and myths and ideas rather than facts. It denies the supernatural, that God is not working in supernatural ways. It praises the Bible in this way because it reveals to us an insight into the way ancient men and women looked at reality. How fun and amusing that is. What can we learn about the way those ancient people thought about the world? Of course, they're wrong. It wasn't true, but we can learn something. And maybe like we learn a message from a fairy tale today, we might learn a truth from a fairy tale story so the Bible is used by the modernist in the same way. There are truths to glean, but the story itself is not true. That's what they would teach you. And that has led us into the present day, perhaps right there with our feelings, but there's a full circle of this, into the present day interpretation, the fourth false interpretation of Scripture, and that is progressive interpretation. Perhaps you've heard of this, or you've experienced it if you haven't heard it by this name. And this follows in the modernist form by stating that the Bible is not the Word of God, it's not infallible, it's not inerrant. And the interpretation of the Scripture, whatever is left of it, is interpreted through the ever-changing lens of social justice, as expressed by the collective direction of certain parts of society. Generally, those parts are the most deviant and antagonistic to the Word of God. That's the way to interpret the Scripture. They would say boldly that the Bible contradicts itself and is inconsistent. And it is false to think of God as wrathful or requiring payment for sin. It's because of views like that that you can hear these two words put together in a statement. Gay Christianity. A transgender Christian. These things have no place in Scripture, but if you follow, if you follow progressive interpretation of Scripture, you can end up in this terrible pit. These are various methods of interpretation that we see in the world around us, that maybe some of us came out of, that maybe we're exposed to as we go about our Christian lives. But what does the Bible have to say? What does God have to say about the interpretation of Scripture? Well, we love certain passages and certain texts that we've memorized because they reveal to us such glorious truths about God, don't we? So we take a great verse like 2 Timothy 3.16 and we, we put it in our minds that we'll never forget it. That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and instruction and all the rest. We believe, if we're here tonight, I trust that you believe that this word of God is actually, as it says to be, the very word of God given to man. Even as we spent so much time speaking of in verse 1 of Hebrews 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, and in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. That's what the Bible is. 
It's the very word of God given to sinners, given to men and women, boys and girls, that we may know him truthfully. But what about its interpretation? Can we understand the scripture that is revealed? Can it be interpreted to us? Some have said that we need an individual, someone else to tell us what it means, a priest, a church, a council, whatever those things might be. But the scripture presents to us one infallible rule for interpretation, the scripture itself. One infallible, that means trustworthy, one trustworthy rule for interpreting the scripture, it's the scripture itself. I heard someone bring that out in Sunday school today, and what a joy it gave to my heart that we're thinking along those lines that the interpreter of the Scripture is the Scripture. Ordinarily, when we're trying to interpret something, we would look to a higher authority. Maybe kids, those that are here tonight, and and adults, you might remember back in school, I don't think you can get through math as a high school student without learning at some time the Pythagorean Theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? It's that measure that talks about the relationships of the sides in a right triangle. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Well, how do you know that that's true? Well, a a math professor might show you a right triangle, and you could measure all the sides and see that the math works out. But could you try that every single time? You could use your experience, but then maybe you'd go and look for another authority on the matter, a higher authority. And maybe a math professor might tell you about Einstein's proof of dissection, whereby he proved the Pythagorean theorem. Or you could find that there are trigonomic trigonomic, uh, proofs for the Pythagorean theorem. And even calculus. You can use calculus to prove. And there are all these mathematicians who have used these different proofs so that we in high school, or middle school even, could understand the Pythagorean theorem and know that it works and it's accurate mathematically. There's a higher authority that we go to. Those that have studied these things more and more, and because all those authorities have worked out all this math for us, we're willing to embrace it. When it comes to Scripture, the highest authority is right before us. It's Scripture itself. Scripture itself is that higher authority. Scripture itself is the very Word of God. That's why the psalmist delights in it. That's why he finds it more valuable than gold, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, because it is the very Word of God. And so, as Scripture is to be interpreted, that only infallible rule of interpretation is the Scripture itself. And look what Paul does. After he has made these great propositions in his arguments from verses 1 through 4, you notice that he's then going to go to bring evidence or interpretation by these words. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Look at that. He's made these propositions. Now he's going to interpret it, expound it, bring it further. He's going to bring evidence. He's going to prove the case that he's making. Is this a valid statement? I've just made a statement. There's not a statement that says exactly those words, that the only infallible rule of interpretation is the Scripture itself. Is that a valid statement? Is that what Scripture teaches us? I want to look at a few texts together to see what we find in the Scripture concerning this method. 
It's very important for us that if we use it, it must be biblical. And I think it's worthwhile taking the time to examine from Scripture this very thing because there are those that would tell you not to follow this method. There are those that would tell you to follow your heart, to follow higher critical scholars who would lead people astray. But what do we find in the Scripture? Look first in the book of Matthew chapter 4. The context of Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus in the wilderness. He is being tempted by the devil. And as he comes to that third temptation in Matthew 4 and verse 9, the devil says to Jesus these words, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Where is it written? Well, that comes from 1 Samuel 7 and verse 3. Jesus himself rebukes Satan with the words of Scripture. He uses Scripture to rebuke that wicked one, that deceiver from the beginning. But let's look further. Matthew 21, a few chapters later. Matthew chapter 21. This is Jesus as he is triumphantly entering into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the week before his resurrection, a few days before his death and crucifixion. And you remember that scene that the people lined the entrance, the, the, the road that went into Jerusalem through the gate. The people lined it, putting down their palm branches so that Jesus on the donkey, even the feet of the donkey, wouldn't touch the ground. And as they did, they cried out, and we'll, and we'll pick up in verse 15. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Here Jesus is interpreting for the scribes, the chief priests, and the Pharisees what they're seeing. And the interpretation comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 8 and verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have declared your praise. Here it is. They're declaring God's praise according to the scripture. The interpretation of that Palm Sunday comes from scripture itself, and Jesus uses it. That's what he does. Well, a few verses later in verse 42, Jesus is again interacting uh, with those Pharisees and scribes and he gives the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And in verse 42, Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Have you never read the scriptures? And he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner, the chief cornerstone, and it is precious in our sight. Oh, there's a whole sermon there, isn't there, of how the rejection of Christ by the Jews became the very blessing to us that we might be brought into the kingdom. 
But this is that which was prophesied long ago, and Jesus interprets the parable of the vine dressers according to the word, according to Psalm 118. We'll go to the last gospel, John chapter 10, and we'll just see this in two other places. First John, uh, or John chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I do not do the works of my Father. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Did you catch that phrase that Jesus said concerning the word? The scripture cannot be broken. The infallible rule of interpretation is this, that Scripture itself interprets Scripture, and that Scripture can never be broken. Jesus is bringing in another hermeneutical principle here, that the Scripture will never contradict itself. Far be it, whatever those modernists and those progressive Christians might say, God's Word does not contradict. It cannot be broken. It is not broken now. It never will be broken in the future. God's Word stands And he uses even that reference from Psalm 82, verse 6, to prove his point, as it were, to the Jews. But go back a few pages to John chapter 5, just to see all the ways, and there's many more, but to see the ways that Jesus uses the Scripture to interpret his own life and ministry. John chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, we read in verse 44, How can you believe who receive honor from another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What a condemnation. The Jews said they were of their father Moses. And Jesus said, if you truly were of Moses, if you truly believed the Torah, if you really believed those first five books, you would believe me, for Moses spoke of me. And if you believed his writings, you would believe my words. And that works backwards. If you don't believe my words, you don't believe Moses' words. This is the great contradiction and error of those that are still in Judaism today. They claim Moses as their father and they believe Moses, but Moses spoke of Jesus. Moses was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Moses with Elijah testifying the law and the prophets that this is the Christ, the one that we were pointing to. And they rejected it. Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. There he is, using all of, all of the law, as it were, to proclaim this message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Not a different message. The same message from Moses that came through Jesus. So that's Jesus. But we see this also in Peter and Paul and all the epistles. And I want to just look at one more text to show that this is the method of the disciples as well. And in Acts chapter 1... We have that account of 
the disciples gathered in the upper room on that Pentecost day. And in verse 15, Peter is there and he gives his first sermon in the book of Acts. And we read this in Acts chapter 1 in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and attained a part in this ministry. Peter, Peter is telling them they have to choose another man, that because the scripture is fulfilled concerning Jesus, that he would be a guide to those who arrested Jesus, as was the very sermon this morning in God's good providence. The scripture was being fulfilled in Judas. That was what was quoted in in Psalm 41, verse 9, and Psalm 69 alludes to the same thing. Peter uses the scripture to explain the scripture. The only infallible interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. As Paul goes through his epistles, he does exactly the same thing. I won't read it tonight, but you know I assume some of that 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, as Paul lays it out, he says, I delivered to you those things which I first received, that Jesus died according to the scripture, that he rose again and ascended up into heaven according to the scripture. Everything he's saying is proved and established and expounded by the scripture. For the scripture is true, and it is its own interpreter. This is the method, and it works backwards as well. Jesus and the disciples, the apostles, the writers of scripture, they interpret the Old Testament through the things that are taking place in the New Testament. I'm focusing this evening the other way around because that's what Paul does in Hebrews chapter 1. But just one example, 1 Corinthians 10. Those, those Israelites in the wilderness, they drank from the same spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. That's what he says. The rock that they, that they were drinking out of was Christ, the living water given to them. It works backwards as well. Scripture is always interpreting itself. Well, there is the method. There is the infallible rule of interpretation. What is the teaching? What are we to learn from all this? What's the doctrine that God wants us to know and understand that's profitable for us in this life? Well, there's several things that we can draw from this, and that is most certainly one of the themes of of Hebrews 1, that there is but one author of Scripture, God himself. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God is the author of Scripture. May he sanctify them through his truth. His word is truth. There's nothing that's a private interpretation of man, but men spoke as they were spoken to and inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is the author of Scripture, Old and New Testament. And as the sole and single author, though he uses many inspired writers, there is but one message of Scripture. It's the gospel presented in the Old and New Testament. We saw it summarized in those seven perfections of the Son, But in Hebrews 4, verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us in the New Testament as well as to them in the Old Testament. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. 
the gospel was preached. So Isaiah can say in 45, verse 22, Look unto me, all ends of the earth, and you shall be saved, for I am God and there is no other. If there was ever a gospel proclamation, there it is in the Old Testament. Because the message in the Old and the New Testament is the same, because the author is the same. There's but one people of God. Yes, Jew and Gentile, Jews God is working with most predominantly in the Old Testament, not exclusively, but certainly most predominantly. And he's dealing with, he, he's dealing with Jew and Gentile in the New Testament, bringing all his elect children, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, all his elect children to himself in glory. One people of God, the church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, not different churches, one in the same, one king, one leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went before them in the Old Testament, is he who goes before us today. And there is one primary focus of this book, and that is what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. You remember, as Jesus started his earthly ministry, he did so in this way, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the thing that he preached. That was the call of the Old Testament, was it not? Repent, seek the kingdom of God, Seek his face, seek his glory. That was the message. This book is so often turned into a book of mysteries by those who would seek to deceive Christians, deceive the elect if they could, but they can't, but deceive the world because they're having great, uh, great success in doing so. This is not a book of mysteries. This is a book revealing to us the mystery, the glorious mystery of God revealed to us. That boys and girls, young and old, rich and poor, wise and unwise, learned and unlearned, can know that there is a Savior for their lost and dying soul. His name is Jesus Christ, and he by himself purged our sins, and after he did that, he ascended up to the majesty on high, and he's coming again. That's the message. It's clear. It's simple. It's from beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, and the call is one. The call of that gospel is one. Repent, therefore, and believe that your sins might be blotted out. And you might stand with Christ on that day of judgment, not against him. That you might bow down in worship, not bowing down in fear and misery for the pits of hell are being opened for your arrival. This is the message of Scripture from beginning to end. Much is revealed here in the method of Paul, is there not? In the book of Hebrews. But this is the way we are to interpret the Scripture How do we apply that now to specifically what's happening in verse 4 as it moves in to verse 5? Paul has made all these propositions for his argument. He's now laying out the proofs or the evidences, if you would, and he does that all from the Old Testament. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There you have two Old Testament references brought together in one verse. Psalm 2 and verse 7 and 2 Samuel seven fourteen. And this is what he does in every single verse all the way to the end. He's evidencing that the son is greater than the angels because he's obtained a more excellent name than they. And he's evidencing by verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament 
the thing is true. It's true in the propositions. It's not a theory in verses 1 through 4, like men might make theories. It's true in the proposition. And then God in his marvelous grace, knowing our questioning minds, knowing our doubts, knowing our unbelief, he drives it home by interpreting it and expounding it and explaining it with verse after verse after verse of Scripture. Which of the angels did he ever say this? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Read the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. You will not find that for the angels. It's a rhetorical question. It never happened. It was only to the son that God spoke in this way. To which of the angels did he ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? It never happened It was only for the Son that these things were said in Psalm 89 and verse 27 and 2 Samuel 7 and 14. In fact, as verse 6 brings out, let all the angels of God worship him. That's what the angels are doing. That's why we spent a month ago almost the entire sermon on the angels. Because the angels of God are worshiping God. They're worshiping Christ. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His name is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth is so far higher above the angels that they were created by him and they worship him. That's what he's bringing out from the Old Testament itself. And he goes on in verse 7, comes from Psalm 104 and verse 4. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8 from Psalm 45, 6 to 7. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In verse 9 from Isaiah 61, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Verse 10 from Psalm 102, verse 25. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11 from Isaiah 39 and verse 4. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? From Psalm 100. And 10, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 11 Old Testament references in nine verses, all to do this, to declare that Jesus Christ, the Son, through whom God has spoken in these last days, he is Son, God, and Lord, and there is no other name that is higher than his name. There is no other name that is greater than his name. His name is so much better than, than the angels, for he has obtained a more excellent name than they. That will be, by God's grace, the subject matter of our last exhortation from Hebrews 1, the more excellent name, Son, God, Lord. This is the one whom has spoken to us in these last days, the very word of God the one that the angels sing of, that all bow down before. This is he. Oh, but how many will hear God's word and they'll say, it's not enough. I need a sign. I need a miracle, a voice from heaven. Maybe maybe even better, someone rising from the dead. No, said Jesus. 
If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, if they will not believe the Old Testament, they will not believe if someone returns from the dead. That's from the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. You probably know that story. This is how powerful the word is that was spoken by the Son in these last days. There is life and salvation given to us through this word because in this word we are brought face to face with the Son who's revealed here. We are brought face to face with the Savior of sinners and called to believe in him. We ought not leave here today if we think that we are going to interpret the scripture in any other way than the scripture itself. Our feelings have led us astray. How many times will we think that they will not lead us astray in the future if we follow them? How often those liars and deceivers in the world have led so many lost souls astray. They have been searching and grappling for the truth. And here comes the modernist, the liberal, the progressive who comes and denies everything that the Bible has to offer for the sinner. Even the Savior himself, for they deny that the wrath of God is real. And if there is no wrath of God, then there is no, there is no, uh, there is no satisfaction and salvation from the wrath of God in Christ Jesus. What cup of wrath did Jesus drink if there was no wrath to drink of in the first place? That's the great heresy, the great lie that's all around us, interpreting the scripture in that way. I'm sure many of you have family members lost, lost, grappling about for light in the midst of darkness under these terrible teachings from so-called churches today that would tell people that they can have peace, peace apart from the Prince of Priests, Jesus Christ, that they can have peace in some way without their sins being paid. But this is the message from beginning to end of the scripture, that Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, that he has drank the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of all his children, and everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ today, they are counted among his children. They're numbered among the elect. He died for them, every single believer. Not one is left out. Their sins are paid for. Why do we think it is that so many are committing suicide in these sins that are celebrated in the present day? I read a report from the National Institute of Health yesterday that said that among those that identify themselves as transgender, 82% of them have contemplated suicide, 40% have attempted suicide. That's of the whole population. Of those under 21, the number of attempted suicides is higher than 40%. Think about that. More than 40% of youth who are pursuing what the world says is great have attempted to kill themselves. And all the while the world says, yes, good, go forward. And they'll even bless them in the name of God, saying God loves this. No, there is satisfaction and peace, not in the lies and false theology and terrible interpretations of Scripture. There is satisfaction, peace, and life in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. That's his name. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because he's reconciled God the Father with sinful man through his own blood. That's the hope for the sins of this world, not an embrace of it. It's Christ Jesus the hope of mankind. We must then see from the method of the writer of Scripture who is writing the Word of God that there is this one infallible rule of interpretation which never errs, and it is the Scripture itself. Even as we sung a few minutes ago, God works in mysterious rays. Did you catch that last stanza? Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain.
If you're wrestling with these things tonight about how to understand the Scripture, come back to the Scripture with your questions. Seek answers from the Word of God. God is his own interpreter. He doesn't let any of his children go confused for very long. Come to him. Pray to him. Ask and you will receive. And there, in the Word of God, in the fountain of life, in the Son of God, who is the Word made flesh, you will find eternal life. Praise be to God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do bless and praise and exalt your holy name, that you not only have given us the great propositions and teachings of Scripture, that you have not only shown us the great arguments of the Apostle Paul, but you have interpreted them for us by your very word. We thank you so much for the unity of the Scripture. We thank you so much for the, the unity of the message. We thank you for the providence of preserving it all these years that we might have it tonight that we might pass it on to the generation that follows. We thank you most of all for your spirit of truth that you have poured out on your church, on your people, that we might understand and believe it. Without the spirit, we confess, we would not understand a word. So tonight, O oh Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit wonderfully, marvelously, abundantly upon this church, this people, this city, state, and nation, even upon the whole world that as we see ourselves in something of the depths of darkness, wondering how much worse can it get, that from this darkness the light might rise and shine forth mightily, and in that your church might be that great beacon of light on the hill, that all men that are lost in sin, women, boys and girls, might come to the light of Christ and there find everlasting life and peace for their weary souls. Oh Lord our God, strengthen us. We pray this in the glorious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.